being started right now. All right, friends, welcome, a formal welcome to Resurrection of the Dead. So this is a course all about, you guessed it, the Resurrection of the Dead. I want to begin with a quick story. Story goes that there's two tailors that are speaking to each other, two Jewish tailors, and one tells the other how much he's looking forward to the resurrection of the dead. He says, you know why? Why, says the other guy? Because when everyone's brought back to life, there'll be so many customers. It's going to be amazing for business. It's going to be great for business. The other tailor says, yeah, it might be great for business with a lot of customers, but there'll also be more tailors. So it, it, we got it on both sides. And the first guy says to him, yeah, but we know the latest styles. All right, friends, this is resurrection. That was a joke. This is a course all about a very important topic. I am so glad that you are here with me. This is such a special course, and it goes boldly where other courses do not go. We are going to dive very deeply into a topic that few have delved into. The topic, of course, is the name of this course, which is Resurrection of the Dead, known in Hebrew as Techiat Hametim. Resurrection, Techiat Hametim of the Dead. And although Resurrection of the Dead is a major Jewish concept, which we'll see tonight, very few study it in depth. Why is that so? I have a few theories. I don't know if they're true. I have theories. One theory is, well, maybe it seems a little bit out there, a little bit strange, a little bit, you know, unusual. Perhaps, maybe for some, it doesn't seem to be so relevant. You know, let me know when we get there, but otherwise, all right, I don't know that I need to know this right now. Whatever, for whatever reason, I, I could, we could speculate, but for whatever reason, it is the resurrection of the dead is somewhat of a neglected subject. And so I want to tell you, that changes tonight. Maybe it was neglected until now, but July 1st, 2021, in town Jewish Academy, right here, right now, we change that because we're going to take a deep dive into this topic. Over the next three weeks, we are going to examine the topic of resurrection from beginning to end, from A to Z. We're going to look at the following. Number one, the meaning of the resurrection. Number two, the purpose of the resurrection. And number three, the process of the resurrection. And the goal of this course is not simply informational. Like it's good information to know, you know, what's going to happen at, at that future time. No. This course is intended to be transformational, not just informational, but transformational, opening our, opening our eyes to new realities that radically benefit and can alter the way we live our lives today. So there's so much to get to. I am super excited. Let's begin. Before we jump into the content, I want to say a special thank you to our core sponsor, Bill and Pam Lewis. Thank you guys for the sponsorship, and may Hashem bless you in the merit of all that we are studying here tonight. So here's the first thing that we need to establish when we think about the resurrection of the dead. And that is, the first idea, the first big idea is that resurrection of the dead is a core Jewish belief. It's a normative Jewish belief. What I mean by normative is it's not some sort of fringe belief or maybe an archaic belief or maybe, you know, some Jews believe. No, it's a core fundamental Jewish belief. In fact, it's more than a fundamental belief. It's a foundational belief. 
the way I would distinguish is that a foundational belief means something that is at the, at the foundation of the edifice. You remove the foundation, and the edifice can't stand without the foundation. So the resurrection of the dead is not just a Jewish idea. It's a core foundational Jewish idea. And Maimonides famously includes the resurrection of the dead in his 13 articulations of the Jewish faith principles. In his 13 principles of faith, Maimonides includes as number 13 the notion of the resurrection of the dead. Let's jump into the text. I'm going to share all the texts on my screen so that you can see them. We can do them together. We begin with our first a second here. Yeah, we begin with our first text. You can see this um, in text number two. This is the liturgy for Animamin. Dr. Maxi, please jump in with text number two. I believe with complete faith that the dead will be resurrected at a time of the Creator's choosing. Blessed be His name and exalted be His remembrance forever and ever. Thank you. So this is from Maimonides, and it's articulated, it, Maimonides formulates core, 13 core foundational beliefs of Judaism. Thir not 13 mitzvot, or 13 ideas. Not even 13 big ideas. These are foundational ideas. These are ideas that if you take any one of them away, you don't have Judaism left. Right? You, it's not Judaism. What remains is not, is not Yiddishkeit. And what is number 13? We have it right here. I believe with complete faith that the dead will be resurrected when God chooses. But that's, a, that's an articulation of faith. Of the 613 mitzvot, only 13 are core faith ideas. And this is one of them. So when we talk about the resurrection of the dead, know this off the bat. It's a big deal. It's a foundational deal. In fact... Let's go even further. The Mishnah, the Mishnah says, the great Mishnah says that one who does not believe in the resurrection of the dead denies the entire body of Torah and Judaism and has no share in the world to come. All right, that, the point is not fire and brimstone. The point is just to bring out how important this belief articulation is. I'm going to show, I'm going to bring up another text. Okay, this is something that I put together from various uh, sources from the Mishnah and Talmud. Let's take a look at this Mishnah. Don, if you don't mind reading this, um, the Mishnah begins, I'm highlighting it right there in the English side, the Mishnah begins there and just goes right down the column. Maybe I'll make it a drop smaller so that it can fit a little bit better on the page. All right, Donna Bogatin, go jump in please. Mishnah, all of the Jewish people, even sinners, and those who are liable to be executed with a court-imposed death penalty, have a share in the world to come, as it is stated. And your people also shall be all righteous. They shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, for my name to be glorified. Isaiah 60:21. And these are the exceptions, the people who have no share in the world to come, even when they fulfilled many mitzvot. One who says there is no resurrection of the dead derived from the Torah, and one who says the Torah did not originate from heaven, and an Epikoros who treats Torah scholars and the Torah that they teach with contempt. So the Mishnah says, call Yisrael, famous Mishnah, call Yisrael Yesh Lahem Chelek Lo Elam Haba, 
every single Jew has a place in the world to come. Okay, and then, you know, every rule has an exception. <laughs> what are the exceptions? Three exceptions. Number one, one who says there's no resurrection of the dead. One who says the Torah is not from heaven. And one who treats Torah scholars and, Torah, and the Torah they teach with contempt. But of course, I'm bringing this Mishnah to focus on this, la on this first of the three exceptions. Who is someone that has no share in the world to come? Someone who says there's no resurrection of the dead, which means that the notion that the dead will be revived is not just a Jewish idea. It's a really important Jewish idea. It's a, such an important Jewish idea that without it, there's no Yiddishkeit. Without it, there's no share in the world to come. By the way, the Talmud discusses this. What's the connection? Talmud says, look, if you don't believe in it, why should you have it, <laughs> right? If you don't believe in the world to come, then why should you get it? Right? Everyone has a share in the world to come, except for someone who says, I don't believe in it. If you don't believe in it, so it won't happen. Anyway, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, the Talmud says. But again, just circling back to, my, to the core idea here. First thing we want to establish in this course called Resurrection of the Dead is that it's a big theme. It's a very big idea in Judaism. It's a big deal to the Mishnah. It's a big deal to Maimonides. It's a big deal to 3,000 years of Jewish belief. Which begs the question, why? That's my question. Why? Why is it such a big deal? Why is it such a foundational belief? Either it will happen or it won't happen. If it happens, great. Whatever. How, why is it foundational and fundamental to Judaism? So you tell me, uh, the, Maimonides' other principles of faith, you tell me that Judaism is built upon this idea of belief in God. Sure, that's foundational. You tell me that Judaism is built upon belief in Torah. Absolutely. You tell me that Judaism is built upon belief that God communicates through prophets and therefore what we have from Moses is legit. Absolutely, or else the whole Torah is bye-bye. Is right? So those are foundational ideas. But why is belief that at some point in the Messianic era, those who have passed away will come back to life, why is that a foundation of Judaism. It's a nice belief. It's a beautiful belief. It's a reassuring belief. It's a comforting belief. It's marvelous. But why is it a foundational belief? Couldn't we have Judaism without it? Remember, foundational beliefs means that you don't have the building without the foundation. You don't have Judaism without the resurrection of the dead. Why, is it, why does it rise to that level? How and why is it one of those 13 core foundational beliefs of Judaism. That is our opening question. So to understand, by the way, at any point, if you have a question or a comment or whatever, unmute. I'm, I'll ask some questions as we go along. Um, but really, jump in if you have any questions or comments or points that need clarification. All right. I just yes. wanted to say something that may be the reason why there's not that much to say about it in your original opening um, introduction, Ari, is maybe because we don't have any expert who came back to tell us right. what it's like. <laughs> there you go, right. It's one of those things that, yeah, right, no, good point, yeah. But it does seem to be a little bit, a little bit left behind, which is why we're doing a big focus now, three weeks. By the way, I should mention, this is parenthetical, um, one of the reasons why I decided to teach this course now, um, not only is it on the heels of the course on the Messianic era that we just taught, um, this can happen, we just taught a six-week JLI course, which this fits really nicely as a follow-up to that and you know, focusing on resurrection of the dead. But moreover, um, we're in a time now in which we mourn the destruction of the, of the temples. 
and we hope for the rebuilding of the third temple and the messianic era and the resurrection of the dead. So this is perfectly aligned with this time of year and kind of the, the mood, the Jewish mood that's in the air. All right, so we have a question. Why is the resurrection a foundational belief? Like, what's the, what's, what's the big deal? So to understand the centrality of the resurrection of the dead, I'm going to take you on a journey, on a magnificent journey, a journey comp comprised of three acts. So tonight's class will take place in three acts. Act one, origins. In act one, we're going to trace the origins of the Jewish belief in the resurrection. In act two is called destiny. In act two, we're going to examine two vastly different understandings of the role of the resurrection and the ultimate destiny of life. We're going to, I, I'm going to venture to say that, to, that what we're going to teach tonight, many of you have never heard and didn't even know that it was a possibility, some things that I'm going to say tonight. We're go I'm going to share with you two completely different perspectives on the resurrection of the dead, the role of the resurrection, and the ultimate destiny of life. And in act, that's act two. And in act three, which is called purpose, we're going to make sense of the importance of the resurrection as we started the class with. Why is it so important? So buckle up, the journey starts now. Now, if you're curious about the origins of the Jewish belief in the resurrection, in other words, you're wondering, all right, you're telling me that Jews believe that the dead will once again live. Where does that come from? We saw Maimonides, we saw Mishnah, but where is that in Torah? If you're wondering that, yeah, you're not alone. You're not alone. The sages of the Talmud wondered the same thing. When the Mishnah said that everyone has a share in the world to come, except for someone who doesn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, the Talmud asked the obvious question, which is, how do we know about this whole resurrection of the dead in the first place? Raise your hand if you've wondered that. How do we know that the resurrection of the dead is a thing? Yeah? All right. For, I'm assuming everyone wants to raise their hand, but just, you know, you can't be bothered to get it all the way up. All right. Anyway, the point is like this. The point... <laughs> um, the point is that it's a question that many... I'm with you. I'm with you. Yes. <laughs> so where, what is the source for the resurrection? The Talmud actually cites a number of answers, and I'm going to share them with you right now. So let's go back to the big screen, um, and I'm going to share these. Now, I'm going to do these texts. The reason is because I want to skip around, and it's going to be too complicated if I try to ask one of you to read it and skip around as, I, as I'm having in mind. Okay, take a look at this little paragraph right here. So just so you know, this is coming from Sanhedrin, the Tractate Sanhedrin in the Talmud, page 90b. Don't worry, I'm sorry, don't worry about that little two over there. It's Sanhedrin 90b. Do you guys still see the page with the uh, Rabbi Yochanan? Yes? Yes, yes. okay. Here we go. Rabbi Yochanan says, from where is the resurrection of the dead derived from the Torah? That's the million-dollar question. And he answers the following. We're going to have upwards of six answers. Here's answer number one. It is derived from the verse, as it is stated, with regard to truma, truma of the tithe, which is a, one of the gifts that the um, agricultural gifts that, that farmers would give to the Kohen. It says, and you shall give the truma, of the Lord to Aaron the priest. So it says, when you have a field in the land of Israel, you should give truma, you should give a gift, um, God's gift, but you should give it to Aaron the priest. 
So the rhetorical question is, as the, and does Aaron live forever? Does Aaron exist forever so that one can fulfill the mitzvah by giving him the truma of the tithe? What does it mean you shall give the truma of the Lord to Aaron the priest? Aaron passes away at some point. How do you keep on giving it to Aaron? So, but, it, but is it not so that Aaron did not enter the land of Israel, the only place where the people would give him truma? In other words, the Aaron himself didn't end up going into Israel, so Aaron would have never received a piece of truma. So he would never receive the gift because he was never a Kohen in the land of Israel where this practice is done of giving truma from the field. So rather, the Talmud answers, the verse teaches that Aaron is destined to live in the future and the Jewish people will give him truma. In other words, Aaron will come back to life, resurrection of the dead, and in the future he will receive the truma. From here it is derived that the resurrection of the dead is from the Torah. Here we see an illusion. Now, it's not clear. The Torah doesn't say, oh, by the way, in the future, those who have passed away will come back to life. It doesn't say that clearly, explicitly, but what it does say, it says it implicitly. The fact that you give, the Torah says you give the truma to Aaron, and Aaron never got truma in his lifetime uh, because he was never in Israel, so how do you give him truma? Indicates, according to Rabbi Yochanan, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, he'll live again in Israel, and he will receive the truma. That is source number one. Or sorry, that is, yeah, source reference number one for where we know the resurrection from Scripture. Second, Sorry. yes. It could also mean, it could also mean uh, by giving it to his sons or his grandsons or great-grandsons, you're giving it to Aaron. Yes. Reading, I mean, it's but a- then you're disagreeing with Rabbi Yochanan. I, I hear you. I, I hear you. <laughs> I'm just kidding, Mark. No, right, so yes, correct. You could have read it as not literal, but figurative. You give it to Aaron the Kohen, i.e. someone from, the, from Aaron's family from the Kohen. 100%. And honestly, if you and I were reading that, that's what we would have said. Rabbi Yochanan says, aha, but if you read it literally, what does it mean? It's an allusion, it's a hint to the future resurrection of the dead. That's, that's, that's one source. Let's take a look. Yeah, yeah. In other places, it says Aaron and his sons, doesn't it? Oh, good, good. So, right, maybe we could look, if we looked a little bit more carefully at Torah, we might say, wait a second, when it means general gifts, when it means Kohanim in general from the priestly family, it might usually say Aaron and his sons, which include future generations. Here it says Aaron only, exclusively. Good. So maybe that's an extra reason why Rabbi Yochanan says it's got to be about the resurrection. Good, excellent. I love that. Let's, let's continue inside and look at the second. We have six sources. I want to run through them a little bit quickly because we have so much else to cover. This is just some background information so we know where it comes from. Um, the next text is right here, same page, 90B in Sanhedrin. It is taught in a bright that Rabbi Simai uh, says. From where is the resurrection of the dead derived from the Torah? Where do we know this? It is derived from the verse that is stated with regard to the patriarchs. Listen to this. God says, I have also established my covenant with them, the patriarchs, to give to them the land of Canaan. God says to Moses, this is to Moses, that I established my covenant with them, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them the land of Canaan, the land of Israel. 
Did God ever give them the land of Israel? Nope. The phrase to give to you the land of Canaan is not stated as the meaning of the verse is not that God fulfilled the covenant with the patriarchs when he gave the land of Canaan to the children of Israel. Rather, it is stated to give to them the land of Canaan, meaning to the patriarchs themselves. From here is derived that the resurrection of the dead is from the Torah, as in the future the patriarchs will come to life and inherit the land. God says to Moses, I made a promise to the patriarchs to give them the land, not to give you the land. So therefore, tell Pharaoh, let my people go, to give them the land, which means the patriarchs will get the land. When do the patriarchs get the land? When Mashiach comes in the future time, resurrection of the dead, patriarchs will come back to life, and they will inherit the land. That's source number two. Source number three. Um, uh, let's skip a little bit. Let's start from the heretics. Heretics ask Rabbi Gamliel, Heretics means people that didn't believe. So they're like, Rabbi Gamliel, from where is it derived that the Holy One, blessed be, revives the dead? They weren't asking. Innocently, they were asking to challenge. They were saying, this is made up. This is fake news. This Jewish, so-called Jewish belief in the resurrection of the dead. Show me, show me the proof. Show me the source. Rabbi Gamliel said to them that this matter can be proven from the Torah, the five books of Moses, from the books of the prophets, and from the writings, Tanakh, in all three sections of Torah, or all three sections of Jewish scripture, Torah, Nevi'im, and Ksuvim, Torah, the prophets, and the writings, there are indications. Now, they didn't accept the proofs from him, but that's because they were heretics, so of course they're not going to accept it. They're going to have a challenge. But let's see what Rabbi, um, who was this, what Rabbi Gamliel answered them. He brought three different proofs. Here's, it from, here's from Torah from the five books. The proof from the Torah is as it is written. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, listen to this. God says to Moses, At the end of the Torah, You shall lie with your fathers and arise. You shall lie with your fathers. That means pass away, return to the earth, and arise. That is an allusion to the resurrection of the dead. The second source of Rabbi Gamaliel from the prophets. Here's the verse. It says, Your dead shall live. My corpse shall arise. I mean, that's pretty clear. Your dead shall live. My corpse shall arise. Awake and sing, you that dwell in the dust. For your dew is the dew of vegetation, and the land shall cast out the dead. The land shall cast out the dead. Hello. This is from Isaiah. The land shall cast out the dead. That sounds to me like no one's going to be sticking around under, under the ground anymore at that future time. And this is referring to the Messianic era. Now, the heretics responded, but... Do we really need to learn the heretic's response? I don't think so. Finally, Rabbi Gamaliel says, a third proof from the books, of, from, this, from, from the writings, from Ksuvim, is as it is written, here's a verse from Song of Songs, written by King Solomon, and your palate is like the best wine that glides down smoothly for my beloved, moving gently the lips of those that sleep. Moving the lips of those that sleep means those that sleep refers to those who have passed on. Moving the, gently the lips of those that sleep means that those who are sleeping, those who are in the earth, their lips will move once again. This is an allusion to the resurrection of the dead. Um, let's keep on going and do one more, one more, um, one more proof that Rebbe Gamaliel, this is a fourth verse that Rebbe Gamaliel cited. He said like this, the verse says that your days may be multiplied and the days of your children upon the land that the Lord took an oath to give your forefathers to give them. The, to give you is not stated, rather it's stated to give them to the patriarchs, which means in the future the patriarchs will come to life. Similar to what we said before. Um, 
another, a final source. This is the last one I'm going to do. I, I, I just want to show you the, the various sources if, in case you were wondering, how do we know this thing even exists? Here are some allusions. Not clear, but these are all, you, you put them all together, you have this uh, indication that clearly there's this thing in Judaism about resurrection. Here's the final proof that I want to share with you tonight. It says, but you who cleave to the Lord, your God, every one of you is alive this day. So the Talmud asks, wasn't it obvious with regard to the children of Israel whom God was addressing that every one of you is alive this day? That seems, that seems extra, right? You who cleave to the Lord, your God, every one of you is alive this day. Obviously everyone's alive because they're alive. Rather, the meaning of the verse is, even on the day when everyone is dead, you will live. Just as today every one of you is alive, so too in the world to come, every one of you will be alive. Again, a reference to the resurrection of the dead, or an allusion, a hint, to the resurrection of the dead. So I showed you now, just now, from the Talmud, Tractate Sanhedrin 90b, this is the famous source, if, if the go-to place in Talmud, Talmudic literature, for the, for the resurrection of the dead, is what I just shared with you. I wanted to go back to the core. The, and the Talmud says there are scriptural sources. We did six, I think we did actually seven of them. Um, throughout scripture, throughout, uh, throughout the Torah, throughout the books of the prophets, and the writings as well that speak to the resurrection of the dead. Okay, so far so good. So we know that there's this thing. Um, so we've established, yes, that resurrection is well-sourced in Judaism and Jewish scripture, great. But now we need to understand the role of resurrection. So act one was origins. Act one was, how do we know this even exists? Well, we've already established, hopefully we've established that. Act two now is, what is the role? What is destiny? What does it look like? We need to understand the role of resurrection altogether. Think. Think about the following. The resurrection of the dead means that in the end of days, in the Messianic era, those who have lived and passed on will return. They're going to come back. More specifically what this means is that their souls, the souls of those who lived, will come back in, into their bodies, will re-inhabit their bodies. That's the, the meaning of the resurrection of the dead. It sounds wild. It sounds like fantastical, right? Almost too good to be true, perhaps. But it's also a bit baffling, and I'll tell you why it's baffling. Listen, listen to the following argument that I'd like to make. Why is the ultimate reward, the ultimate destiny of life, a state of being where souls come back inside bodies? Why are we romanticizing the physical reality? Wouldn't it make more sense that the ultimate end game, the ultimate destiny of life, in other words, the culmination of life, should be a state where souls are disembodied, souls are not back in bodies, where souls are living free, unencumbered, uninhibited, unlimited by the restraint and the restrictions of physical, corporeal um, uh, life? Wouldn't a soul be best suited to live its best spiritual life, hashtag, this is like almost an Instagram hashtag, living my best spiritual life without a body? So why send, why send a soul back inside a physical casing? In other words, understanding that there's a foundation, let me just, just go step by step what we covered tonight so far. Understanding that the resurrection of the dead is a foundational Jewish belief. Understanding that it's well sourced in scripture. Right? So this is a thing. This is going to happen. We believe it's going to happen. So my question is simply this. Why? Why are we bringing all the souls back? 
into bodies. Wouldn't it be better if all the souls got together, kumbaya, without, a, without bodies? Why let the bodies ruin the ultimate spiritual party? Remember, at the end of days, this ultimate time, this ultimate destination of reality, it's going to be the perfection of life itself. Why will the souls be schlepped? I'm using the souls, schlepped. I'm using the word schlepp, I mean, be schlepped back into a body, it seems like a downgrade. It seems, frankly, like a downgrade from the soul. So, let me give you an example. So you have Moses, right? Imagine Moses. Who's greater than Moses? Greatest prophet that ever lived. Most humble person on the face of the earth. I mean, Moses, right? He's the bomb. He's the dude. Moses passed away, what, um... 30, what, Taurus 33, 33, you know, minus 40 years, so 32, 80, whatever. He passed away almost 3,300 years ago. And his soul, you can imagine where his soul is, the height, the greatest heights. So what's going to happen? Mashiach is going to come, right? So the world reaches its, its pinnacle, its apex, the, the culmination of reality. And then what happens? Moses, come back down into a body. Into a body. He has to worry about eating and drinking now again. That, that, he needs that on his head, right? He needs a head, even. What? Why not have the ultimate state, a state of souls? All right, I see some chats came in. Let's see. Mark says there will be more bodies than souls. I don't... Mark, explain your contention that there will be more bodies than souls. I thought the number of souls was defined by the number of Jews who left Egypt. Well, a good, good question. Excellent. Mark is saying, it says, Mark is a Kabbalist. Mark is saying, based on Kabbalah, it says that, <laughs> you didn't know you were. No, but Mark's right. It says in Kabbalah there are 600,000 root souls. Correct. But the root souls splinter off into sub-souls, right? And, um, and soul sparks, and that constitutes all the souls. So all of the sparks will come back. Not only root souls will come back. All of the individual spark souls will come back. But good question. Um, parts of the souls will be in bodies. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I'll elaborate. All right. Um, at least that way everyone again. Oh, David says, oh, I have a good idea. David's like, I know why they're coming back. Because you can't do a mitzvah without a body. So yeah, of course the souls are going to come back to do a mitzvah. David, good answer. I like that. All right. Hold that thought and, uh, and see if it matches where, where we're going tonight. You'll see it's... It, we got quite the journey still to go with some incredible ideas, but hold that thought. Dr. Maxi, jump in. The resurrection of the body. This occurs in the world to come, so I presume that is after Mashiach or when Mashiach Oh, when now you're getting to a good question that we might have assumed has an easy answer. This is part of the new information. I call it new information. Part of the, what I believe will be new information for most of us here um, that is going to be very relevant. So I don't want to answer on one foot because the answer is complicated. I'm going to bring two well, major opinions. David and Mark's question is contingent on the answer to that question. So, You're saying if Mashiach's here, we don't need to do mitzvot because the world is perfected. So it could just be souls hanging out. I like that. Good. I 
<laughs> I like I like the way you're thinking. Good. All right. I, I think everything is hinging on some stuff that we're still yet to show, which is fine. But but stay tuned. Ray, jump in. I know you had a question. Um, I think that Joy covered it. Thank you. Okay. All right. Awesome. Good. Any other questions or comments thus far? Okay. Um, I feel like I didn't welcome everybody here. So Morris, welcome. Fran and Drawer, welcome. Did I get everybody? All right. Listen, this is, I look, these classes, even on Zoom, for sure in person, when we're back in person, but, it, but even on Zoom, it's like Cheers. Remember that old show, Cheers? The bar? Where everybody knows your name? There you go. Yeah, it's like a, it's a, it's a happening place. Okay, back to our story. So, so you know what, Joy? I want to go on your question because that's where, that's kind of where we're gonna we're gonna take this. So, Joy asked, you know, one second. When does this whole resurrection happen? Let's place it in some sort of timeline. So, like what? This happens before Mashiach comes, after Mashiach, like Mashiach means the Messianic, right? The Messiah, the Messianic era. At what stage? Like, when are we talking about? Not which year, but like what's, uh, where do we put this, how, how does this all fit in? Hold that question for a second, and I want to go back to the question that I just asked before we kind of opened it up for a, for a quick uh, discussion. My question was, why is the ultimate reward, why is the ultimate destination of reality when we schlepped the souls back in the bodies? They were doing fine without all that drama of a physical body to lug around. It's like ball and chain. It's like, hello, I got to drag this thing around everywhere I go. Why is it coming back? I have to tell you that this is such a good question. It's not my question. I mean, I'm asking it tonight, but it doesn't originate with me. This is such a good question that it prompted none other than Maimonides, you heard me correct, Rambam, Maimonides, to reach a completely radical conclusion, a conclusion that I believe most of us have never heard before. Maimonides concludes, based on the question that I asked a few moments ago, that the resurrection of the dead is not the ultimate destiny. That's it. You heard what I said. Maimonides claims that the resurrection of the dead is not the end game. It's not the final frontier or the final destination. The culmination of everything is not the resurrection of the dead. I'm going to try to simplify Maimonides' approach. Oh, let me just time out. We're going to have two opinions. Maimonides and Nachmanides. So stay tuned for a dissenting opinion. But we're starting with Maimonides. Maimonides says, based on the fact that it doesn't really make sense that you would take a soul, schlep it back into the body and say, you've now arrived, that's it. You reached the top of the, top of the mountain. How is a body the top of the mountain? It's not, according to Maimonides. What's going to happen? So Maimonides gives us the following timeline. Again, Dr. Maxi, this is going to be Maimonides' understanding of where this fits in. You ready? Okay. He says, Mashiach is going to come. The Messianic era is going to arrive. And then, so that's step one, Mashiach. Step two, resurrection of the dead. So Mashiach is going to arrive, the Messianic era. Then we're going to have the resurrection of the dead, where all those that have passed on will come back into bodies. And then, get this, <laughs> and then everyone's going to die. What? 
Yeah. I, t I, I literally told you like five times tonight, not you only, but I told all of you tonight that this is going to be mind-blowing. Maimonides says that Mashiach is going to come, everyone's going to come back to life, and then everyone is going to die again. What does that mean that everyone's going to die again? That means simply this. All of the souls will separate from their bodies. Not souls don't die. Right? I mean, I, just to clarify, when I said everyone's going to die, it doesn't mean that's the end. It just means the soul will once again separate from the body. Souls don't, souls are life. They can't die. Life doesn't die. So the soul will once again separate from the body and live on in eternity in that pure soul, un, body unencumbered state. Are you with me on this? On Maimonides? Yes? Before any questions, does it, do, do you understand what I'm saying? Yes? Step one, Mashiach. Step two, resurrection. I don't have three hands. So awkward. Step three, the souls leave again. And that's it. Pure spiritual bliss. Soul, fl soul floating for all eternity with all of its soul friends. And, uh, and that's it. That is Maimonides. Um, Donna, jump in. Yes. I'm just. Yeah. Can you please clarify when the soul, or before it, initially when it comes down, it goes into a body, an existing live body. No, it's original body. Oh. The res. Yeah. Oh, I should have clarified. Sorry. The resurrection of the of the dead means that the soul goes back to its body, and you might now now you might be wondering, well, how do we know where its body? Like that's how how do we know? God's got this. We're going to talk about that next week's class. The process. We'll talk about the loose bone and the dew of uh, the dew of, uh, of resurrection. We're going to get there next week. I mean, we're get there. Whatever. We're going to talk about it next week. Halavai, right? We'll talk about it next week. Um, but yes, according to Rambam, here's the, here's the here's the three steps. Step one. Mashiach arrives. Step two. The souls come back into their bodies. Step three. They leave again, and this time for good. And what is the ultimate destiny of, of life? Souls. Now, listen to the language. I want to teach you the language. It's really important to know the language. I'm going to type it into the chat. Maimonides says that this ultimate destination is called Olam Haba. All right? I just typed it in the, in the chat. You can take a look at how I wrote that in English. Olam Haba. Olam Haba means the world to come. He calls this state... Of, of soul sans body, just soul. At the end of everything, souls, that's it. He calls that olam haba, the world to come. So listen to what I'm about to share with you. In essence, according to Maimonides, olam haba, the world to come, is the same state of reality as we call Gan Eden. Gan Eden is paradise. Okay, let me, let, me, let me explain. Right now, as it exists now, before Mashiach's not here yet, as it, is, as it exists right now, a person lives on this earth, a soul comes down into a body, lives 120 years, please God, and then it comes time to separate, to decouple. So the body goes back to the earth, and the soul goes where? 
So this is not a course on the afterlife, on what the soul's journey is, because we've done that multiple times. But where does the soul go? You guys, a lot of you have taken courses with me about this. We've done multiple courses on this. Where does the soul go after its time on earth? It goes back. Heaven, paradise, whatever you want to call it. In Hebrew, we call it Gan Eden. Right? It go, well, it goes through a process of cleansing. We call it Gehinnom. It goes through the, uh, the, purg- the, the, the cleansing stage, maximum 11 months, right? And then it goes to, and then it goes to Gan Eden, to paradise. And that's where the soul doesn't have a body and it just basks in the rays of godliness and its relationship with God and its closeness and its, its pure pleasure. According to Maimonides, the ultimate state of reality is the same thing. Souls without bodies, which means, which means that according to Maimonides, Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden Paradise, and Olam Haba, the world to come, are essentially the same thing. Yes, they're both the soul without a body. Now, you, you might be saying, where do we see this? How do we know this? Who told you that Maimonides says this? I'm not telling you anything that you can't find in the sources, but you don't have to take my word for it, says LeVar Burton. Let's go read it inside ourselves. That was a Reading Rainbow reference. Yes, any Reading Rainbow fans? Maybe, maybe not. Okay, here we go. Let's share this text right here. Wrong text. Thank God for tabs. Here we go. Skipping, 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 skipping. Here we go. Maimonides. Text number five. All right, let's ask, who are we going to ask? Mark Galt, please read text number five. This is, let me just show you where this is from. Maimonides, Mishneh Torah, Laws of Tshuva, 8.2 and 9.2. Let me make it a little bit bigger. I'm sorry, this text is a little bit fuzzy here, so I'm going to try to tweak this for next week, but take a look at this. Mark, please read. In the world to come, there is no body or physical form. Only the souls of the righteous alone, without a body, like the ministering angels. The ultimate of all reward and the final good that will have no end or decrease is the life of the world to come. Uh, Is that kind of what I told you guys? Yeah. He says, the world to come, which by the way in Hebrew is Olam Haba. That's literally Olam Haba, the world to come, but Olam Haba is world to come. He says, what is the state of the world to come? What does it look like? There's no body. There's no physical form. Just the souls without a body, and that is the ultimate reward, the ultimate and final good that will happen. That's the end game. According to Rambam, Maimonides' end game, souls, no body. You know what life looks like? Much different than what it looks like now. According to Maimonides, the end game of, you know, long term, you know, the end of it all is souls. Like what we call Gan Eden now, like where Moses and Abraham and Rabbi Kiva, where they're all hanging out. That's where everyone's going to be. No bodies. Ultimately, no bodies. Take a look at the next text. All right? The next text is going to explain, is going to elaborate on this, um, about why this is um, a good thing or why this is a pleasurable thing. We say, well, hold on one second. The souls are going to just be without a body. That doesn't sound like fun. That sounds, I don't know, boring or untethered. What, what, what does that feel like? What does that look like? Take a look at text number six. This is going to be where Maimonides explains the pure pleasure that exists on a spiritual level, a pleasure that you and I cannot even know. Stanley Herman, if you don't mind, please read text number six right here. 
I shall now begin to treat the subject that I originally intended. Know that just as a blind person can form no idea of colors, nor a deaf person comprehend sounds, nor a, comp nor a castrated man feel the desire for sexual intercourse, so the bodies cannot comprehend the delights of the soul. Just as fish do not know fire because they exist ever in its opposite, water, so are the delights of the world of spirit unknown to this world of flesh. Indeed, we have no pleasure in any way except, of, except what is bodily and what the senses can comprehend of eating, drinking, and sexual intercourse. Whatever is outside these is non-existent to us. We do not discern it, neither do we grasp it at first thought, but only after deep contemplation. It cannot be described, neither can anything be found to compare with it. It is, as the prophet exclaimed when admiring its great glories, how great is your goodness that you have laid away for those who fear you, that you have worked for those who take refuge in you. Thank you. This is coming from Maimonides. Let me show you the source. This is Maimonides in his Pirush HaMashnayot, in his commentary on the Mishnah, Sanhedrin, Chapter 10, essentially the introduction to the Mishnah that we learned together before about those who don't believe in the resurrection of the dead don't have a share in the world to come. Remember we, we, we read that before? This is Maimonides' commentary on that, and he explains that what is the ultimate end game, as, I, as we said before, he believes it's souls without bodies. And he says, well, why is that fun? He says, because we cannot even fathom how pleasurable that, that is. A person that miss, that's missing a certain sense cannot even imagine what pleasure there is in that sense. And the same thing is true with us. We who live in the world of bodies cannot imagine, cannot comprehend a pleasure that exists, pure spiritual pleasure we cannot even fathom. So we have a very limited um, perspective of pleasure. We have a very small window of pleasure. There's spiritual, infinite spiritual pleasure that's out there that the soul without a body can experience. And he says, that's exactly why the end game, souls without bodies. Because when a soul comes back into a body, it's once again stuck in a limited perspective, in a limited framework, in a limited experience. And God wants to give the best reward, the ultimate reward, pure soul, pure delight, pure spirituality, pure connection with God. This is the Maimonidean take. Now, now you might ask the following. Yeah, Stanley, go. I think um, there was a suggestion that there is a glimmering possible through uh, contemplation. Did he say that we really don't understand it fully, but we can, through some effort, get some kind of a hint at it? So the last paragraph that you read says it cannot be described, neither can anything be found to compare with it. Oh, we do not discern either grasp it at first thought, but only after deep contemplation. What I understand him to mean is that you, can, you don't have first-hand knowledge of it. You can only know that there's something beyond what you know when you think about it. Does that make sense? It's almost like, it's almost like typically uh, we don't know what we don't know. But what he's saying is, if you really think about it, you can start realizing that there's so much that you don't know, but that doesn't constitute knowledge. That still doesn't mean that you know what it is. You just know that there's something beyond what you can know. Does that make sense? It's 
It's understanding exactly. It's Yediyas Hametzias and Anasagas Amos. It's understanding that there is something called pure, unfiltered, unlimited spiritual pleasure without actually experiencing it. Because we can't, because we're stuck in the box. But he's saying that's why the end game is pure spirit, pure soul, no body, because that's the ultimate experience. Does that make sense? Is it suggested somewhere that it's kind of an intellectual pleasure? You know, Maimonides is a philosopher, so he was always about, you know, the, high, the mind is the closest thing that we have in our experience to, to pure spirituality. That the, the, the more we go into the mind, the more we're touching on that, if not getting there, but, but touching on it. So yeah, it's, it, it's, it, it, it would seem that he's touching on that idea. Now, and Maimonides wrote this about when? You're saying uh, Maimonides lived in the, what, 11, what time was he the 1100s, I want to say he lived? Let me see. Hold on one second. Let me, let me quickly. When in his life, do you think? Oh, oh, when in his lifetime. Um, Maimonides, by the way, I know this, is, this isn't what you were asking. He was born in 1135 and passed away 1204. So he lived in the 1100s. But when in his lifetime did he write this? I am not sure. Um, I, I'm, honestly, you could probably Wikipedia it and find out. Maybe it'll tell you which books he wrote first, but maybe not. I'm not sure. Now, getting back to, um, I, I believe actually he wrote Pirish HaMishnayis. I believe he wrote his commentary on the Mishnah, one of his earlier works. I, I believe that, that this is one of his earlier works that, that, that he wrote this. But don't, don't quote me on that. Um, I can't say that for sure. But here's what I want to ask, and this is an obvious question, and, and it might have... You might have thought it, maybe you didn't think it, but when I ask it, it's going to hit you like a ton of bricks. You know what? Let me see if you guys can come up with a question. Based on Maimonides' understanding, let me ask you a question to prompt you to ask the question. Based on Maimonides' understanding of the ultimate destination, which piece of the timeline doesn't make any sense and seems to serve no purpose? Which piece of the timeline seems to serve no purpose? It looks like Donna texted that question. Oh. Hold on. Who? Well, let me see. Um, I kind of did, yeah. I said, well, what? This one. <laughs> Good. Good. Why the resurrection of the dead? So it spends time on earth to get whatever it needs to get, and then it goes up in heaven, and then Mashiach's going to come. All souls are going to come back again, and then they're going to go back away. Well, that seems like a, a round trip for nothing, right? So the, the fact that we live, that the souls come down once, Fine, all right, whatever. But then you're saying when Mashiach comes, they're going to come back down again, only to leave again? Why would it need that trip? In other words, this course is called Resurrection of the Dead. The course is called, right, it's all about Tchiat HaMeitim, Resurrection of the Dead. And so the core question now is, according to Maimonides' understanding, why is there a resurrection of the dead? Why would the dead come back to life only to become disembodied again? Because you have to sacrifice the, the, the sacrifices to Aaron the Kohen. Because you have to, the people have to talk with their lips. I mean, if he's, you can't, you can't I, dis, I, disallow I, the, the, the proofs. Right, I, no, I hear you. No, so you're saying because it says in the scripture that it has to happen, so that's why it has to, but, but that's, that's just saying because we have indications that that's the way it's going to happen, so we know that, that it's going to happen. But I'm asking from a conceptual place, from a place of my, the way my money sees it, if you ask them a question, listen, well, hold on. You have to understand there's another completely different way of looking at this, which is Nachmanides, which we'll get to in a moment. That's the second opinion. This is first opinion. So 
you have to justify, Maimonides has to justify his way of thinking all the way through. And therefore, we can ask the logical question, and you can't really say, well, the scripture says it because the scripture, you can understand everything a different way. So if you want to understand it this way, you have to explain, you have to justify why this would happen. Now, what I'm asking, the question I'm asking is actually a question that commentaries ask. The, comment, the commentaries on Maimonides, this is a, this is a huge topic in, 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 in Jewish learning. This topic that we're exploring tonight is a major topic. The machloket, the dispute between Rambam and Ramban, between Maimonides and Nachmanis. This is one of the made biggest topics of dispute about Judaism. So Maimonides caught a lot of flack on this because according to his timeline, he's all about, you know, ultimately just souls, no bodies. So then why techiyat hametim? Why resurrection? So I saw a beautiful answer that's given that says that he perhaps the Maimonides' way to answer would be that the experience of the soul, the, 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 the pleasure, the spiritual pleasure that the soul enjoys is commensurate, is based on the amount of mitzvot that it did in this world. So, like, like a person in their lifetime, so everyone does a certain amount of good, brings a certain amount of light into the world, and then passes away, and then the soul in Gan Eden in paradise has an experience based on the experience that it had here. It has the spiritual experience above. So what is in the future time? So what happens? All of the souls that are up there come back down. Why? Because remember when this happens. It's in the Messianic era. In the Messianic era, there's no evil. There's no, so you can do all sorts of mitzvot without, without any um, resistance. And that means you can pump up, I mean, not like it's a video game, but you can pump up the high score really high to then propel the soul to this incredible space above so that when it ultimately, the end game of just the soul without a body, it's not limited to what it earned in its original experience on earth, it now has a second chance to boost it to a higher level. Does that make sense? Sort of? Okay. Now, this is all, I'm giving you like a whole, a whole world of understanding according to one opinion. This is all Rambam. It's all Maimonides. But there are serious problems with Maimonides. And as I've told you before, he's not the only game in town. Typically, by the way, what Maimonides says is halacha. Rambam typically is, you know, what he says, that becomes the law, and that's accepted. But not always. This is one of these examples, this is one of those instances where he's not the accepted opinion. Yeah. The accepted opinion is not anything that we just said, according to Maimonides. There is another opinion, and the distinction of the consensus is according, in accordance with the second opinion of Nachmanides, Ramban, with an N at the end. Let me just give you a quick, a quick tutorial on their names. One, they lived roughly in the same era. One is Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon, Maimonides. He was the son of Maimon. Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon, Maimonides, known as Rambam, with an M at the end. And the other's name was Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman. Not Maimon, but Nachman. Ramban, Nachmanides, the son of Nachman. So their, their names were both Moshe. They were both great scholars in the, in, the, in, in, in the Middle Ages. They were both, you know, just top 
world-class scholars of all of Jewish time, Moshe, Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon, Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman. And in this case, Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman, Nachmanides, vehemently disagrees with everything I just said about Rambam's opinion, Maimonides' opinion. Everything from A to Z, he disagrees. Ultimately, what really drove his opposition, so it just cannot be what Maimonides says is based on the question that I asked a moment ago, which I answered, but that was just the question that he couldn't get past. Why would God bring back all of the souls of all the people that ever lived? We're talking about Adam and Eve and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebecca. Yeah, everyone. Everyone, everyone, everyone. To come back in their bodies, the greatest miracle ever, only to get rid of the bodies again. That, that just didn't make sense. Yeah, I know I answered it because before some people say so that the soul gets boosted. So that it, this was like... It, it, it didn't make sense to Ramban, to Nachmanides. Why would God bring back the dead to life only to grant them death once more? That makes no sense. It was a deal breaker for Nachmanides. And so he takes a completely different approach. You ready to relearn this entire, entire topic? Let's go. According to Ramban, according to Nachmanides, here's the way it works. When a person lives, nowadays, right, a person lives, they live 120 years, and then they pass away. So the body returns to the earth, and the soul, Gan Eden, goes to paradise. Gan Eden, paradise. Only soul, no body, bodies in earth, bodies in the ground, souls in paradise. And the soul there enjoys the reward of its good deeds on earth. Then, Mashiach will come, the Messianic era will be at hand, and at some point in that era, there will be the resurrection of the dead. The souls of everyone who lived will come back into their original bodies. And that's it. And that's the ultimate destination. According to Nachmanides, that constitutes the ultimate stage of reality. What we call in Hebrew, and I wrote it in the chat before, Olam Haba, the world to come, i.e., the ultimate finale of, of all. What does it look like? What is Olam Haba? The Olam Hatechiyah. The world of resurrection is the world to come. According to Ramban, according to Nachmanides, when the souls come back into bodies, that's it. And so it will be for eternity. That there will be souls in bodies on earth, hanging around, fabringing, that's Yiddish for gathering together in good spirit, and that's the way it's going to be. In other words, according to Nachmanides, Olam Haba and Gan Eden are not the same thing. Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden, is a state of souls without bodies. And Olam Haba, the world to come, the ultimate destination, is souls back in bodies. According to Maimonides, it's the same thing. Souls without bodies. Right? According to Nachmanides, it's souls back in bodies. Don't take my word for it. Once again, let's go to the sources. 
And let me show you what it looks like inside. Here we have text number, let's skip a few texts over here. Let's do, oh man, I actually didn't want to skip these texts. Okay, I'm going to do these very quickly, although it's talking about Rambam's uh, position, Maimonides' position. Um, oh, I just, okay, I, I, I must read this. Again, Maimonides, okay, I know we already moved away, but here we go. The resurrection of the dead is a fundamental principle transmitted to us by Moses, our teacher. However, Rambam writes, Maimonides writes, bear in mind that all people must eventually die, dissolving and returning to the, ma to the matter from which they were formed. And according to the Tzemach what this means is, in other words, the resurrection of the dead will only be temporary. Thereafter, we will all return to Gan Eden, right? Spiritual paradise, which is the ultimate and true good, otherwise known as the world to come. According to Maimonides, it's the same thing, spiritual reality. According to Ram Ramban, Nachmanides, they are different stages. I'm going to read this text. Okay, here we go. It is abundantly clear. This is now the second opinion. It is abundantly clear that the term world to come used throughout rabbinical literature is not the spiritual world of souls and the reward that they earn immediately after death. In other words, the world to come, Olam Haba, is not Gan Eden. It's not a spiritually disembodied reality. No, rather... The world to come is a world that God will create in the future after the Messianic era and during the resurrection of the dead. So thus there are three stages. Stage number one is the reward for the soul in the world of souls is called in the language of our sages Gan Eden and at the paradise and at, at times it is also called Aliyah on high or the heavenly yeshiva but either way that is Again, when a person lives 120 years and they pass away, the, the body goes into the earth and the soul goes on high to Gan Eden. That's one stage. Thereafter, number two, thereafter, Mashiach will come, the Messiah will come, and thus begins the phase of the world to come, Olam Haba. Number three, the climax of that will be a day of judgment and the resurrection of the dead, which is the reward bestowed upon body and soul, or really soul and body. This final stage, stage number three, is the ultimate goal and hope of every believing Jew. It is the world to come, a world where body and soul will both return. The soul will climb to great heights in spiritual perception and delight, and both will endure forever. This is Nachmanani's position, which is completely diametrically opposed to Maimonides' position. Rambam says the ultimate endgame is souls, no bodies. Nachmanides says the ultimate endgame is souls in bodies. Two completely different perspectives, right? You can't get any different than, than, these, than, these, uh, than, than, than these two. They uh, yeah, I just wanted to add one thing. It's more of a question. The bodies that they'll come back into will be in, good, in a good state of health. Yes, correct. It, it does say in the sources that any physical ailments... The Talmud discusses this. Any physical ailments that ail the body prior, right, in, during its lifetime, especially at the end, etc., will not be present in the rebuilt body of the resurrection era. In other words, it's going to be in its perfect state. The body will be in its perfectly, physically healthy, robust state. The soul will be in its spiritual per, per, uh, perfection and that's the way it's going to uh, that's, that's, that's the way it's going to happen so what we see here between Maimonides and Nachmanides is a disagreement about, fundam about fundamentals right number one what is the meaning of the word or the phrase Olam Haba the world to come is it a physical reality or a spiritual reality what is the end game of 
this of life, right? What is the end game? Is it a physical reality or a spiritual reality? Rambam says, Maimonides says, spiritual reality. Nachmanides says, physical reality. So according to Maimonides, it's souls sans bodies. Nachmanides says, souls in bodies. So which one will it be? You have two, two different opinions. And the answer is that the majority, basically everybody, the consensus of the sages and maybe even more importantly, the consensus of the Kabbalists. Kabbalah, the census of Kabbalah, the Kabbalists is that the ultimate end game and the meaning of Olam Haba is souls in bodies. I, agree. I saw somebody wrote in the chat that, oh, Alex wrote, it feels like Maimonides is the mystic. What's ironic and maybe even super perplexing, which is going to be the final step of today's class, is that, that the Kabbalists, the mystics, sided with Nachmanides, who takes a, a seemingly reduced perspective. Like, the ultimate is that the souls come back in bodies, and that sounds like a bit of a downer. It's like, Maimonides, as Alex writes, sounds like the mystic. Maimonides sounds like, oh, the souls, no bodies. The souls are just going to do their thing, and that's it. So here's the deal. Here's the deal. We need to understand why is it. We need to understand why is it. Um, why is it that? But I think it's a greater, a greater wonder that the bodies and the souls will be together. Yes. To me, that's more of mysticism. That's, a, that's the ultimate mysticism because the bodies are we our bodies right now are limiting our souls when souls come back after Mashiach comes it's the the bodies will be ultimately elevated to their highest potential I'm with you I hear you I hear you good all right so well, hold on let's 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 present the question and then we're gonna I, I hear you but so let's but let's first let's first develop the the, the idea here so we have a spiritual perspective which is Maimonides. We have a more physical perspective, which is Nachmanides. And we have the consensus. And we have the Kabbalah, which says it's Nachmanides. That Olam Haba is not Gan Eden. The resurrection is not a temporary stage. Souls will not leave again. They're not going to head back to heaven. They're going to stay here, married with the bodies for all eternity. So all of this is good. And all of this is fine, but ultimately we're back to where we started. I asked the question. One of the original questions in tonight's class, I asked the question. And that is the question that bothered Maimonides, which is why he said what he said. The question is, how does it make sense that the ultimate reward will be souls back in bodies? Isn't it a downgrade for the soul? Wouldn't the ultimate experience for the soul be pure spiritual bliss without the, the trappings of the body, without the trappings of physical life, isn't the body bringing the soul or holding the soul down. So this question brings us to our final point, to the big finish. If we want to understand the ultimate destiny of life, if we, un we really un want to understand what Olam Haba is, we need to understand the purpose for why all of this was created in the first place. And the answer that Judaism teaches, the answer that Kabbalah and 
Hasidic philosophy declare is that the reason why God originally created all of this, and if you've been in any of my classes for even, you know, a, a few times you know that this is a point that comes back again and again. The reason why God did all of this creation is so that we, you and I, transform this world into a home for God. God wanted us to transform a space of darkness into a space of light. Let's take a look at a beautiful text from the Rebbe on this. This is going to be text number nine. Here we go. Text number nine. Um, let's ask Ray. Ray, did you read yet? I don't think so. Ray, jump in. I didn't, but I can't read that print. It's okay, you know, I know, and I feel bad. It, it is it is a little bit of a, of, a, of a wonky print over here, so I'm going to read it. So here we go. The Rebbe says, This is what God wanted, to conceal and hide His, His eternal light, so that thereafter... Through a lengthy process of spiritual evolution, a lowly material world could be created. God wished that humans should work to make a home for Him in that world to transform darkness into light and realize the abundance of light that comes specifically from a place of darkness. What then, you may ask, is the purpose of this superior light that comes from darkness? The answer is, so is what God wished and it transcends all reason. This is actually a quote from the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad. I, I said the Rebbe, it's the Alter Rebbe, the, the first Chabad Rebbe in his, in his work, Lekutei Torah, discourses on the holiday of Rosh Hashanah. He explains that what did God want? What is the purpose of creation? What is the purpose of life? What is the purpose of existence? To transform this world from a dark space to a light space. To transform this world into a home for God. That's why we're here. Now you might ask, he says, I love this last paragraph. You might ask, well, what's the purpose of that? Why did God want it? And the answer is, why did God want it? Who knows? But that's what God wants. Right? This is what God wished. It transcends all reason. Go figure it out. You ask somebody, um, you like uh, uh, chocolate or vanilla? They say chocolate. Why do you like chocolate? Why do I like chocolate? I like chocolate. It's what I want. It's what I like. Hashem wanted, God wanted to create a world in, that's a dark space. And, to, and He put us here to make it light. And He wants us to do it. And that's why we have the Torah. And that's why we have the mitzvot. Every mitzvah that we do, every mitzvah, every single individual mitzvah that we do, does essentially this job. It takes a fragment of this dark world and it makes it transparent to its source. It makes it translucent. It makes it shine. It moves it from a space of darkness to a space of light, from a space of hostility to source to hospitality to source. It makes this thing part of God's home. It makes it congruent with what God wants. That's what every mitzvah does. With every mitzvah that we do, we declare the world is God's. This is God's home. Let's take a look at text 10a. The next text over here. Alright, here this comes from the Rebbe. The reason for creation in general and humans in particular is because God wanted a home specifically in this lowly world. Low not in terms of space as there is no higher low before God, rather low in stature. The idea is that this lowly material world be subsumed in the godly reality. This transformation is the purpose. This transformation is the purpose 
of the Torah and mitzvot. This then is the reason why Torah and mitzvot were given specifically to human beings in a physical world who with their physical bodies deal with physical matter so as to transform what appears to be apart from God to an absolute vehicle of godliness. This quote, this text, text 10a right here, this is it. This is it. If you want to know, why are we here? Why, did God, why, why you know, people have been asking for all time, what, what's the purpose of life? Why are we here? This is it. God wanted a, low, a lowly world, not low physically, geographically low, but low in stature. And God wants us with our souls, in our bodies, using the physical matter of the universe to transform what appears to be low and separate from God into an absolute vehicle for godliness. Every mitzvah that we do brings a little more light into our world. It is, and it's a cumulative effort that spans thousands of years each person doing good deeds, doing a mitzvah, one after the other. And how many mitzvot do each of us do? We do tens and hundreds of thousands of mitzvot in our lifetime. One mitzvah, another mitzvah, another mitzvah. And after all of these years and after all of this cumulative effort, it all culminates with Mashiach. That is what the Messianic era is, as we discussed in our recent course. The Messianic era is when the job is complete. When the darkness is fully transformed, when all we see is no more, we, know, we no longer see the darkness. We no longer see the world as an opaque entity that covers and conceals the divine truth, but rather something that is transparent to the source. You look at the world and you see God immediately. You see, this is not a world. This is God's world. This is not a tree. This is God's tree. This is not a body. This is God's body. When all we see is God, that's Mashiach. The very world itself will bespeak its creator. In the messianic era, essentially then, all physical matter itself will begin to shine. And so, on the deepest of levels, it's quite fitting that the souls of the deceased, as Nachmanani says, will one day come back into physical bodies. When? In the messianic era. Right? For, 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 for two reasons. Number one, firstly... Because the soul, which did so much in transforming the world, the soul will need to reunite or should reunite with its partner in perfection. Right? Who, how did the soul create? Every soul played a role in bringing about Mashiach. Right? Those that live now, those that live before, every human being, every soul that did a good deed played a role. So everyone's going to come back. So how do you leave out the bodies? The bodies played an integral role in perfecting the world because you couldn't have perfected the world physically without a physical body. A soul can't do a mitzvah. A soul can't give tzedakah. A soul can't wrap tefillin. A soul can't light Shabbat candles. Have you ever seen a soul? Exactly. Can a soul hold a candle? It can't. Can it strike a match? Nope. You got it. So how does it work? Through a body. So of course it's going to come back in the body because that's its partner in perfection. Right? That's, that's the basic understanding. But much deeper than this, at the time of the Messianic era, when the world begins to shine, when the world finally is honest and transparent to its source, the body also, the bodies also will shine, having been transformed to a pure vehicle for the soul's expression. No longer will the body be a hindrance to the soul. At that time, it will be a pure and perfect partner with the soul. Our question was, why would the soul come back into a lowly body? The simple answer is because the body won't be lowly anymore. Because Mashiach is when the world is transformed, when the darkness shines as day, when physical matter 
is no longer physical matter that obstructs its godly core, but that bespeaks its godly core. The physical will become pure and shining of its own. In the words of the Rebbe in text 10b, which I'm about to share with you, take a look at this. The entirety of creation is advancing up the ladder of perfection and gradually becoming more refined. In terms of world history, this elevation has three rungs. The present era, the messianic era, and the resurrection of the dead. In the first era, the period before the advent of Mashiach, the world is preoccupied with a constant battle between the forces of good and evil, and sometimes the forces of good triumph, other times the opposite. During the second era, the messianic era, the battle against evil will have been won and we will be redeemed. In the third period, the period of the resurrection of the dead, evil will be utterly eradicated. I'm going to explain the difference. In the second era, the war is won, but the enemy is still, you know, still there, still present, even if not powerful. But in the third era, which is why it takes a little bit of time, in the era of Tehiyah, Tehiyah Tameitim, the resurrection of the dead, evil will be completely eradicated, no trace of darkness. The world will know neither sin nor death. We will then receive unimaginable and incomprehensible reward. The re this reward will be granted to the soul in a body. Why? For at that time, the original purpose for which the universe was created will have been fulfilled, to create a home for God in the lower worlds. And what is the expression of that? When do you know that God is indeed found in the lowest of the low? When the bodies will live forever also. The soul living forever makes sense because the soul is spiritual. But for a body to live forever, for a body to live in perfect concert with the soul, aha, that means the body is a special thing. When does that happen? When Mashiach comes. So my friends, we've learned a lot today. We explore the source of the Jewish idea of the resurrection of the dead as discussed in the Talmud. We went through the various six or seven sources in Scripture. We discover tonight two completely different perspectives on what the resurrection is, when it will take place, what it means. We talked about Maimonides' position, that it's a stepping stone for a spiritual future. Uh, that was Maimonides. Nachmanides, who says, no, it's the end game, is the resurrection. And we learn why in the ultimate analysis, it is the physical experience that expresses the very messianic transformation. Nothing says Mashiach and physical transformation more than the resurrection of the dead, more than a soul living in perfect harmony with a body, without the body holding it back. And so my friends, from all that we've discussed tonight, to me at least, the lesson is abundantly clear. And the lesson is that Judaism has a radical take on life itself. This is not a class about what's going to happen. This is a class on what is happening and what is the reality that is right in front of us today. Judaism has a radical take on life itself right now. You see, the rest of the world believes that there's an absolute divide between spirit and matter. The world believes that people believe that the world is not holy and it's not getting holy, which leads to one of two polar opposite approaches. There's the hedonistic approach and the ascetic approach. There's the hedonist and the ascetist. Both are founded on the same core belief that the world is dark and it ain't getting any lighter. So one camp, the hedonist says, well, spirituality is there. The world is here. Let's enjoy it. Forget spirituality. Live and be merry. Enjoy and indulge. And when we're gone, we're gone. 
but enjoy it in the moment. That is the hedonistic perspective. There's a divide, enjoy life. The opposite approach is from the same perspective. There's a divide, this world is messed up, we got to escape it. This is the, 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 the escapism path. This is the path of uh, re- spiritual beliefs that say to be a spiritualist, you have to vow to separate from the world. You can't live a physical life. You can't live a material life. You can't engage in physicality and be holy. Right? Some spiritual beliefs, some religious beliefs say that if you want to be the pinnacle of spirituality, you can't lead a physical existence. So whether it's it's that expression or whether it's meditation, going up on a mountaintop, forget the world, I'm going to separate from the world to have a spiritual moment, to have a spiritual connection. The idea here is, whether it's Western religions or Eastern religions, the typical religious perspective is, the world is messed up, let's get out of here. The hedonistic expression is, spirituality is somewhere else, I don't know about that, let's enjoy what we have in front of us. But both, they're po- and they're polar opposite expressions, but they're founded on the same core perspective, that there's a dichotomy between spirit and matter. Judaism has a radically different position. Judaism says, dichotomy, separation, mechitza, who said? Who said separation? Who said dichotomy? Where, who, where does it say that? Judaism says, the world is ready to be a home for God. And that's our job, not to indulge in materialism or to run away from it, but to channel, to harness the material world for a higher purpose, which means, let me say this very simply, get a job, earn lots of money, and do good things with it. Shop and buy and cook good food and use the energy to do a mitzvah. So it's not indulge for the sake of indulgence, nor is it run away from physical experiences to be holy. No, it's engage in the physical, go all in for a higher purpose. That's what makes this world a home for God. That's what transforms the universe to a space of light. And it's also what ultimately transforms the human body into a pure vehicle for the soul. Judaism tells us that our job is to infuse spirituality into our physical activities. And that is our mandate. That's how we transform the world. And that's why when the soul will come back into the body, that's why that is for eternity. After all, there's no better place for the soul to be than in a place in which even the physical is transparent and translucent to the spiritual. It's no surprise then to answer our original question in today's class. It's no surprise then that the resurrection of the dead is one of the foundational tenets of Judaism. I asked before, why is it a foundational belief? It's a belief. Okay. You take away God, you take away Torah, you take away Moses, you don't have Judaism. But take away resurrection of the dead, seems like everything should stand fine. Seems to be like an idea. But why is it a foundation? It's a foundation because it reveals the greatest truth in our lives. It reveals the purpose of everything. Without the resurrection of the dead, you and I might believe that the purpose is to escape this world, that the purpose is not transformation but escapism. 
And that's not why we're here. Ultimately, the voting powers, and I'm not on the board of, of I don't have the power of the vote. The voting powers voted that Nachmanides is correct, that Ramban is correct, that souls come back in bodies. Why? It teaches us a message about life. This life is meant to be lived to transform the world into a better place. Thank you very much for joining me tonight. For lesson number one of Resurrection of the Dead, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you found it meaningful. I hope you found it inspiring. There's one message. There's one message. Make it shine. Make this world shine. Transform your space, your time. Your, transform your world from where you are, starting with your own body, into a home for God. And that's what makes this world the beautiful garden that it is and it will be manifest as. My friends, next week, the, the class is entitled Discovering Your Deepest Self. You see, today we explore some powerful themes of the resurrection of the dead. Next week, we'll look at the nature of belief in resurrection. We'll look at its anticipation. And we'll also look at a very surprising Talmudic teaching that says that all of this, the Messianic era, the resurrection of the dead, is going to happen as a surprise. Well, if we're meant to anticipate the arrival of Mashiach, if we're meant to believe in it, well, then how can it surprise us? Are we anticipating or is it going to be a surprise? Do we know that there's a thing happening or not? We'll explore this topic at length in our next session. Along the way, we're going to learn about some very key resurrection components, the luz bone and the dew of resurrection. You don't want to miss this. I can't wait to see you at the next one. Same bad time, same bad channel, next week, Thursday at 8 p.m. All right, let's stop here. And we can break for questions and answers. Jump in. If there's anything that you want clarified, or you want to add a point or, qu or question a point, feel free to jump in. I have one, one addition. Yes. He said timeline. Yes. You, you, in other words, the sequence of events. Correct. I can't give you a year. I wish I could give you a year. Yeah, I know the year. The year is 5781 this year, right? That's what we believe in every day, that it's coming. So... How long is it going to be? I've seen sources that say 40 years after Mashiach comes, there's going to be the resurrection of the dead. But my understanding is that it's not necessarily 40 years. Right? It doesn't have to be. It's not a hard 40 years. It could be, you know, 40 is, a, as we all know, right? 40 is a very symbolic number. 40 years of traveling in the desert, 40 days of this. And 40 is very symbolic, so it could be all sorts of meanings with that. Um, but yeah, so it's not exactly a timeline, but more of a... A sequence of events. Uh, Maimonides says, Mashiach, resurrection, death, essentially, souls. And Nachmanides says, Mashiach, resurrection, the end. That's it. Nothing else afterwards. Um, I'm checking the chat, by the way, but unmute in the meantime if you have any questions. Um, oh, Mark is asking a good question. Until the temple is rebuilt, many mitzvot can't be performed. Correct. Which is why we need that temple stat. Where's Mark? Is Mark here? I don't see Mark. All right. Someone tell, someone tell Mark that he's got to build a temple. Let's go. Mark, get on this. Get on this, bro. All right. Other questions, questions, comments. Mark, yeah, Mark is our Levy. I know, I know. I know. We need him to sing. Mark's got a great voice also. I mean, he can belt yeah, it out. Yeah, yeah so. But, but he can help. He can help. We got.
It reminds me, great story. Hold on, Donna, one second. I just got reminded of a story. I want to say it quickly. There was um, the coach of the Harlem Globetrotters. Remember the, bla the basketball team, the Harlem Glo Globetrotters? They had a Jewish coach. His name was, I forgot. Anyway, they had a Jewish coach. That, I think they had different teams, but the one based out of New York, Long Island. So he was there at his home in the 1970s or 80s, probably 80s. And he's watching one night on cable, and he sees there's a Fabrengan, because they used to broadcast the Fabrengans live, because Chabad. Chabad leverages technology. Oh, guess why? Because the world needs to be transformed. So technology is not, there's no mechitza between technology and spirituality. You've got to leverage technology for a higher purpose. Are you with me on this? Zoom creators, do you know why you created Zoom? I'll tell you why, it's for this right now, but I digress. Back to our story, so this guy is watching, this coach of the Globetrotters is watching this Fabrengen, and he doesn't know Yiddish, but there are some subtitles, and he's like, this is amazing. So he, you know, the next opportunity, he drives down to Brooklyn, he lives in Long he drives down to Brooklyn, and he says, I wanna meet the Rebbe. Like, I gotta meet this guy. They're like, well, you know, it's not so easy to, to meet with him. He says, he, they arrange a meeting, and, um, or maybe he sees him on the way to synagogue, like on, walking through the building on the way to synagogue, and he stops him, and he says, Rebbe, I'm, I'm a coach. And the, without, without missing a beat, the Rebbe says, perfect, we need a coach here. And that was it. He was known as coach. He was literally at the Fabrengans, he's known as coach. And he was the guy when they were, what the Rebbe said at the Fabrengan, I don't know that coach understood the Yiddish, to, and, and the depth of the, of, the, of the intricate talks on Kabbalah and, 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 and Jewish philosophy. But I'll tell you this, when it came to the singing, because all the talks were punctuated with songs in between, when it came to the singing, Coach was right there. You can Google, um, oh, I feel like I want to Google this. Okay, I'm not going to do it right now. Reb, Lubavitcher, Rebbe, Coach, Globetrotters, you'll see the story written up and you may even see some video clips. This guy was all in. You should see him, he's unbelievable. What's my point? I have no idea now. My point is that we need everybody. Everyone has a role. Everyone has their talents. Everyone needs to be on the team. We need a, we need, you know, we need a forward. We need a center. We need a shooting guard. We need a point guard. I may have said that twice. We need a coach. Everyone's got a place on the team. All right. Next question, Donna. You had this. Yes. Um, so we saw the big picture today, but if we look at it individually, we can visualize our own lives differently. I mean, not towards an end, but towards a continuum. I feel like we should like pack our suitcase, you know. <laughs> Donna, you got this. You should know that throughout Jewish history, people would pack their suitcases. I, this is not a joke. It's not a joke. I it's, have a friend who actually bought a donkey. Okay, that, so, that, all right, that, that, I, that I've never heard. The full disclosure, that I've never heard. Um, I think the donkey is for Mashiach, so, but maybe they're, okay, anyway, I don't, you got me there, but as far as packing bags, 100%. I got to tell you something else. I, maybe I want to save this for next week. Uh, okay, let me just drop this current, let me just drop this idea. If the body live, if our, we're here, right? We're, we're here? I think we're all here, right? We're, we're alive. So Abe, got, no, it wasn't Abe Gottlieb. It was, some, if you don't mind, somebody Google. I know that you guys want to see me the whole time. Sure. But someone open up a, a, a tab here and Google Harlem Globetrotters or Rebbe, Harlem Globetrotters coach, Chabad, something like that. Oh, Abe Sachs, maybe? Was it Abe Sachs? Is that the guy? Anyway, somebody... Someone Google it and, and let me know what you find. But back to our story. Donna, listen to this. If, the if our bodies are here now, 
right? And they will be back in the future. Fire truck. So what that means is, essentially, that eternal life, right? There's this continuum. That death is a temporary experience. Are you with me? Death is a, is, is a temporary experience. Because there's a... There's, who is it? What is it? Exactly. She said. It says what is less known as the razzle dazzle comedic showmanship was the idea of British born Jewish businessman Abe Saperstein. That's the guy who figure from the twenties to the fifties, or you're looking at somebody later. Somebody later, somebody later. This guy this guy is Abe Sachs. Abe Sachs. We got him. We got him. Abe Sachs. All right, my friends. The reason I, he told the story was because we, you, I, you, I said that Mark is a levy. Yes, uh, and, and, and we need a levy. We need a levy yeah, to exactly. help. So the co we need a coach. The Rebbe said we need. We a need coach. a coach. A hundred percent. Yes, yes, that is correct. <laughs> I have a picture of him. I have a picture of him. That's it. But you know what? Hold on one second. I, I think I want to. I want to pull up a video of him. Give me a second here. Okay. Give me a second here. Let me pull it up by me. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Oh, there we go. There we go. Oh, my gosh. This is so inspiring. Okay, here we go. I'm going to do this and go back here. I'm just walking myself through this sharing. I'm going to share with you a 160-second video clip. Okay? Abe Sachs, coach of the Harlem Globetrotters. You want to see him in action? You want to see the coach in action? If I bring in, if you've never seen If I bring in, this is a great first clip to, uh, to jump in on. Okay, optimize. I'm just walking myself through this process of sharing. And let's see if this works. Let's see if this works. Let's pull this up. Can you guys see the video still? Yes. All right, here we go. He used to write to the Rebbe very often about his feelings and what he was going through. Despite of whatever he was going through, copy quotes, you couldn't know. Anybody who saw him at the Fabrenian would think that life was peaches and cream. Everything was beautiful to him. That's our coach. <laughs> <laughs> You guys see that? That's he's the coach. The Rebbe said we needed a coach, and that was it. And and by the way, that what that clip alluded to. Um, what you saw in kind of like the voiceover and whatnot, that conversation is that he, he, he had sorrows in his life. He had, he had challenges. And you know what? At a Fabrengen, he was the, you saw him, he was the coach. He was like leading the charge over there. Anyway, all right, my friends, I think we'll, uh, we'll wrap up. It's great to see you all. I hope that you enjoyed tonight's class. Um, it's Thursday night. So what do we have tomorrow? We have Daily Power Parsha. And I hope to see you guys. Uh, well, we have a class tomorrow at noon. 
Then Shabbos, Sunday morning, Kabbalah and coffee. Otherwise, have a wonderful Shabbos. Good rest of the week and uh, lots of blessings. And let's make the transformation happen. All right. We'll see you guys. Laila Tov. And a safe 4th of July. Yeah, safe. That's true. 4th of July, right? Happy uh, and safe 4th of July. Take care, everybody. Bye. Thank you very much. Pleasure, pleasure. We'll see you.